This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So much is going on today. Um, the news has been most interesting. There we go. I guess that'll do. Um, so much has been happening. Um, it's ironically, it's been a little bit of a slow news day week sort of thing. Um, but not really. You know, it's one of those things like, like there's, there's stuff going on, but it's not anything really significant and all of this type of thing. So, um, but obviously the big story over the weekend was the coronation of King Charles III and Camilla the Queen Consort. Um, that was Saturday and they had a lovely coronation concert and coronation activities throughout the weekend and... Um, Harry, Prince Harry was doing a solo act over there in attendance. Um, I don't know if that's going to be much of an olive, olive branch to the rift there, but, um, that happened. So that's, you know, a good, a good thing. Continuity of a thousand year old monarchy is something that, uh, most of us will not have seen in our lifetime. Um... You would have to have been born in, you know, the mid to late 40s to have experienced Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953. And so, um, for a lot of us, this is our first time. However, um, it's probably not going to be the last one. Charles is in his 70s. Unlike his mother, who was the reign longest serving monarch in world history, um... It, it, obviously, he's in his seventies. His reign will not be that long. We will have William and Kate before um, before too many years. So we'll uh, be doing this again probably twenty twenty five years from now, um, as uh, you know, as Charles gets into his eighties and nineties and beyond. So, but very spry, a lot of fun, a um, lot of you know pomp and circumstance and all that sort of old world ritual and um there's a lot of customs and things a part of the coronation that's very old and ancient um including the scepters the orbs the robes the stone of destiny from scotland the coronation chair which has been in use since the 12th century um all this type of thing there's a lot of um kind of wonderful objects and things that have been kept and preserved and gone on to keep that continuity 
um, going and that dynastic, that dynastic feeling going. So that, um, that is, uh, that, that was kind of the big, the big story over the, over the weekend. Um, last week, we talked about this a little bit. We talked about the Federal Reserve, um, hiked interest rates for the last time and said they were going on a pause because inflation was slowing down. So interest rates are now covering around 5%. Um, the stock market has been really on a roller coaster. For Markets have been a little unsettled. Um, and I tell people that's the way markets are going to be from now on. The days of, you know, steady, non-heart palpitating growth are long over. Um, and, and we're going to have a lot of market volatility um, moving moving forward. And, and to that end, um, we have some interesting kind of set of news stories. So um, the first one it has, has to do with inflation, and it's from Bloomberg. And it says here, why airfares, hotels, and cars are getting so expensive for Americans. Strong demand, staff shortages means more pricing power. Car makers, airlines, and hoteliers continue to raise prices. Um, it says here that companies from automakers to hoteliers are keeping on sacrificing sales volume, sometimes by design, sometimes by necessity, in favor of higher prices, a dynamic that will test the Federal Reserve's efforts to rein in inflation. Uh, the latest set of earnings showed that businesses aren't likely to walk away from a strategy Corbu LLC's Samuel Rines calls price over volume adopted by certain industries at the height of the pandemic when supplies and labor were both hard to come by. Ford Motor Company said this month it is aiming to maintain robust sticker prices, even if that means rolling fewer cars off its assembly lines. Lodging giant Marriott International is focused on increasing room rates, especially for corporate accounts. Southwest Airlines is among U.S. carriers that are piling, pulling in record revenue as tight flying capacity is helping to keep fares higher. Um... And then it goes on to some of the reasons, the actual reasons that um, inflation is rising, which is really two things being squeezed at once, supply chain and labor. It says here that when uh, the pricing tactics reflect lessons of earlier phases of the pandemic, when Ford and its rivals struggled with a chip shortage, they saw running a thinner backlog of cars had profit upside. Unlike Ford, which is intentionally limiting manufacturing output, some airlines can't fly at full capacity because they don't have enough trained pilots and are seeing delays in receiving new aircraft and parts. Southwest, for example, has said it could have operated as much as 8% more flying capacity in March if it had enough pilots. The capacity constraints, coupled with strong demand, are allowing the industry to command high prices, especially for flights overseas. And it goes into a bunch of numbers that we will not bother with. So, um, the... You know, for things that... The reason I pulled the story is that it shows that for things that are constrained by supply and labor, those things are going to be more expensive. Like, that's just what's going to happen moving forward. Those things are going to be expensive, and those prices are probably never going to come back down. So, for a lot of people, especially over the last mm, 10, 15 years or so, um, we've had a real democratization of services and uh and things and especially travel got real cheap there for a while especially air travel got real cheap and hotels got real cheap and there were all these sites that you could go and find cheap rooms and all this type of thing that's really probably over functionally speaking the cost of labor is too high 
um, getting in the right amount of stuff for people is too high. That's just not practical at this juncture. Um, and so that's, you know, going to be mean for a lot of people um, taking a lot of these trips and things that they once might have is just not going to be possible anymore. Um, and that unfortunately is the, the cost of the cost of inflation. Um, however, that also gets us into the next economic story, um, which has to do with, um, recession. So this is a Politico and the whether, you know, when, when we are going to have a, um, a, uh, a recession has been a hot topic um, over uh, over the last several months. We've been in a technical recession since last year, but it has um, it's something that with the way things are going with our banking crisis, it's not a banking crisis. Which, if you read today's newsletter, I talked about extensively. Um, if you have, don't get my newsletter, go head over to CameronJournal.com and sign up for that. Um, the sign-up page is right on the home page, and if you scroll down, you get a pop-up, but it's right on the home page. Um, or if you read any article, it's on the right side. But um, the this is interesting because when you look at the banking system, they're anticipating contraction, especially in commercial and industrial. So it says here, the latest survey of lending standards by banks released by the Federal Reserve on Monday and intently watched by Wall Street for recession signals reflected, quote, tighter standards and weaker demand for commercial and industrial loans to large and middle market firms, as well as small firms over the first quarter. The Fed survey added that, quote, banks reported tighter standards and weaker demand for all commercial real estate loan categories, which goes into what I have said that with commercial real estate collapsing, which I have said is coming since the pandemic, that we're now finally starting to see that have an effect on banks, bank lending standards. It's also going to have an effect on portfolios, especially the bonds that go along with a lot of commercial real estate um, and the mortgage products, the MBSs get packaged together. A lot of those things, because they, until the pandemic, were so reliable, were bought by a lot of pension funds and other things that need a consistent return over time, which means this is going to have big and deep um, impact. It also increases the banking crisis because a lot of the commercial lending in this country does not happen at the big, big banks. It happens at the mid-sized banks, which the story addresses this. Other mid-sized banks, including PacWest, which at one point last week dropped 45%, Western Alliance and Zions came under heavy investor pressure late last week as Wall Street probed for possible next victims in the rolling crisis, created in part by the Fed jacking up interest rates 10 consecutive times to the highest level since 2007. The Fed bumped up rates another quarter point last week, but suggested it could possibly pause the hikes for its next meeting in June. The rate increases helped tamp down a historic rise in consumer inflation in the wake of the COVID pandemic, but prices are still rising significantly faster than the Fed's target of around 2% per year. Unemployment, of course, is still historically low. Everyone's looking for where um, the, the recession is going to come from, and they needn't look too far. The answer is very simple. It's going to come from uh, commercial real estate. When, when a lot of these loans start going under and a lot of the bonds that have been created as a result of that debt start defaulting and those swaps start happening, there's going to be a huge suck of money out of the banking system 
into insurance companies. And, and that, for the economy, is going to be quite tragic. And also, a lot of the companies that own and manage these properties are going to be going under and going into bankruptcy and all this type of thing. It's going to be a mess. But that's where the next recession is going to come from. Now, here's why it will be different than 2008. It will be different than 2008 because there is an opportunity to mitigate a lot of those losses and write down a lot of that debt by the Federal Reserve doing what they did with qualitative easing and taking on some of that debt, buying up the toxic stuff, and then kind of repackaging left what's good. Um, I do feel strongly when it comes to a lot of these mid-sized banks, the Federal Reserve has not been regulating them properly. And that's what's caused the banking crisis that's not a banking crisis. Um, that no one's going to admit is we're having a banking crisis. That that's where it's going to come from. So if you're if you like me are feeling very strong two thousand eight vibes right now, you should be because we're in a similar situation. But instead of residential housing, it's commercial real estate, and and bank loans. The other aspect is a lot of these banks have a lot of bonds, treasuries, whatever have you, on their balance sheets. And those bonds have gone in on value because the interest rate on them is so low. So in the bond market, when interest rates go up, the value of bonds at previous lower interest rates go down because they don't pay as much. New bonds are worth more because the interest rate they're paying out is higher. Now, most banks have the ability, and, and they do this, to what do called um, market making. So they will bring together buyer and seller and they will make a market at a price that both parties agree on or a price the bank agrees on which means functionally speaking for a lot of these financial products the banks can decide what they're worth with impunity because it's not an open public market like the stock market so these banks usually have these assets marked far higher than they could be sold in the market and if banks have to get into cash and start selling them off they will bank huge losses that, those two things coming together, worthless bonds, commercial real estate, is going to exacerbate the banking crisis, and that's where the next recession is going to come from. The only good thing about this is that that recession shouldn't reach Main Street as much. One would hope um, that it wouldn't reach Main Street as hardcore as 2008 did. But here's the thing. I have learned from studying e economics, every recession and depression is a little bit different. The lessons you learn from the last one only apply to the next one to a point because conditions and things are different. A recession in a high inflation environment that also has low unemployment, then we start ending up with a situation, and I've also been saying this for a while, like the late 1940s, where we have recession after the government spent a bunch of money um we have prices and cost of living going out of control all these types of things and it makes it for a very difficult economic environment to dig out of and it usually lasts about five years so that uh in fact we had at the end of world war ii we had a huge cost of living inflation spike from 1946 until about 1949 and that was actually followed by a recession from 1950 to 1952, and it was the recession was as low as 1951, and then the economy perked back up again for the rest of the 50s. Um, so it, that I think 
that 1946 to 1952 period, I think, is where we are right now, and it's it's a guide. It's a guide. So, um, taking a break from the economy for one moment, we're going to come back to the economy and talk about India. Um, the other big thing that happened this weekend, and I should have mentioned this at the top of the show, was the Allen Mall shooting in Texas. Um, I have a story here from Vox talking about uh, mental illness is not responsible for America's gun crisis. Um, the the I watched the segments on the View this morning, um, and I I was genuinely I mean I wasn't surprised by the discussion. How many times have we talked about this? You know, obviously, you know America does have a gun issue. I would like to see better gun regulations when it comes to you know, how we deal with guns in this country. I'm not saying don't have guns and people shouldn't be able to own them. I have owned guns. I enjoy a good range session. It's a lot of fun. Um, I think guns are fine if they're handled well and in the right situation. Um, I don't think we should have weapons of war in the street. They're just not necessary. Um, and I, I think people should, you know, have liability insurance and are licensed and take a test so they know how to fire and clean their weapon um and how to you know how to load fire clean their weapon basic basic things um and they should you know just like a car you should be able to have to pass a little multiple choice exam and a little practical exam and with all that in mind i you know i think people the conversation was so chaotic on the view i think people are getting really fed up with Every so often, we end up having the same conversation of, oh, children have been shot, this terrible thing has happened, all this sort of thing. What are we going to do? And the government's just kind of like, well, nothing. I think there's a hunger for something to happen for some overhaul and some reform to occur. And obviously, our hearts go out to the families of those affected. Um, I... I, I know what it's like to be in a, a situation where violence has broken out and shooting has broken out in a mall. Um, that happened to me one time. It was one of the most absolutely terrifying things that ever happened to me in my entire life. I have been all over the country, all over the world. I've been in some very sketchy situations, but that still to this day is one of the most frightening, like, hour, you know, hour and a half, 90-minute period of my life. So I can only imagine, I mean, even just the survivor PTSD is a lot, and then you have families who don't know if their loved one is coming home. I, I will say this, which is what I say every time. We don't have to live like this. Really, we don't. We don't have to live like this. We can choose, we, as a society, can choose to do something different if we want to. That is an option that's available to us. The only question is, do we have the political will to make it happen? That's always the question. Will we have the political will to actually make it happen? And right now, I don't see it. You know, especially with Republicans in the House and the way politicians are tied to the NRA like a child in their wagon, I don't see it happening. But the reality is this only can go on for as long as we the people choose it. If you, you know, if you want to have a change then all you need to start showing up to 
your when your Congress critters come to start campaigning in 2024, show up to every single town hall, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. Show up to every single town hall and ask one single question. When are you going to do something to stop gun violence in this country? And then record them and then publicize it. And, the, and they're going to start figuring out real quick that people have had it. I mean, there was a Fox News poll. 81% of people are okay with universal background checks. 70% want um, red flag laws. You know, and everybody this morning, it was on all the morning shows. I watched Morning Joe this morning. I watched The View. All the shows. They're all talking about it. Um, and everyone's, you know, it's like, oh, you know, what's it going to take to, you know, get it done and make it happen? I don't know. Get rid of the NRA. Convince people that some basic gun reforms is not, you know, a terrible thing. Um, I, I did a TikTok. I intentionally did a TikTok on the Second Amendment to get views, and it worked spectacularly, um, and got like 200 comments, um, where I talked about the problem with the Second Amendment. It's a very difficult thing to try to regulate a thing that is seen as a sacred and inalienable right. And the reality is the founders had lived in a country where gun ownership was restricted by the government and owning a gun was a very difficult thing to do. That actually presented a problem in the early days of the revolution, getting enough weapons, the soldiers were you know, kind of sharing guns um, in the early days because there were not enough weapons in the colonies. And it was a way for the British to control its colonies. And, uh, um, and that, that is, so, so they, they wanted to always have citizens with the ability to defend home and hearth in their country, which is why the text of the Second Amendment reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, people like to quote that last semi-dependent clause a lot. What they forget is the beginning part, a well-regulated, well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state that the founders did not imagine people running around shooting up the public spaces. That was not what they envisioned. They envisioned people being able to stay armed in case of foreign invasion because back then we didn't have a standing army. They would be horrified if they found out we had one because they were not a fan of that. Um, and that is... So there's some historical baggage that comes with this. But the reality is we don't have to live in a country where people are shot in shopping malls and synagogues and churches and concerts, all this type of thing. We don't have to live this way. And we can choose not to. It's a matter of political will. So, um, this, when it comes to the mental health argument, I'll finish on this. Um, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott is calling for more resources for mental health following a mass shooting in an outlet mall in Allen, Texas on Saturday, in which a gunman killed at least eight people. Abbott presented those resources as the solution for the gun violence that has racked the state in recent years, but there's little evidence increased funding for mental health services will reduce gun violence. Also, it should be pointed out that um, Texas falls dead last in mental health funding and care nationwide. So if mental health is the issue, which is not in its entirety, but if it is the issue, Texas is woefully behind. Now, on a less depressing note, um, let's talk about India for a minute. So, um, it says here, uh, the fight for India's 1.4 billion consumers is a fixed match. 
New Delhi's decision to open up the economy unshackled growth, but it also concentrated power in the hands of a small circle of tycoons. Well, that's kind of what you get with free market capitalism. It says, uh, 25 years ago, when as many Indians flew annually as they do in a month now, two state-owned airlines controlled half of the domestic aviation market. This March, 57% of the 13 million tickets that got sold were booked with just one private airline. India's embrace of capitalism may have brought the country a higher rate of economic growth than its pre-1990 socialist past, but sectors regulated by the state have largely failed to usher in the muscular competition that gives consumers more choices, better services, and lower prices. And it goes into this study about all the people that own everything in India, and there's basically five companies that own a great a great deal of of things and it says here the east asian model of promoting large conglomerates as national champions was aimed at capturing larger chunks of global value chains in india hegemony is being acquired or getting awarded in domestic sectors india's import tariffs are behind only sudan egypt and venezuela giving entrenched domestic groups more bargaining power over 1.4 billion consumers contrast the competitive scenario in india's aviation industry to its rival china Three major Chinese characters, China Southern Airlines, China Eastern, and Air China, don't even control half of the scheduled seat capacity between them. Pricing competition among Chinese airlines on domestic routes should remain strong due to seat growth. Um, however, over in India, the uh, only other uh, of the two airlines, the only other one they had, Go Airlines, uh, suddenly last week filed for bankruptcy, um, raising the risk that lessors will rank away its planes. If the 7% passenger share of Go First gets redistributed, Indigo, the brand operated by Interglobe Aviation, might see its control expand to three-fifths of the market. Which basically means they're, gonna, they're ending up with state-nominated monopolies. Which, I mean, that's what we do in this country. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is, this is only news because it, unlike China, which opened its economy and reduce tariffs and buys a lot of agricultural products and all this type of thing. India has opened its economy, but only kind of on the outward go. Um, it is, it is not, uh, started importing a lot of products and allowing foreign companies to come in and compete and all this type of thing. They've kind of kept a tamp down on that, but they, they do have this very bad habit and the airline industry is a particular example of it. Um, of kind of picking the winners and losers in New Delhi and deciding who's going to get the this and who's going to get the that one. And, and, and that, that leads to very large companies that can make a lot of money for an ever smaller group of people. But it also, it also lends itself to a lot of corruption. It also lends itself to a lot of price gouging. Um, and you need to look no farther than our own country for this. I mean, <laughs> all of our media is owned by four companies. All of the things you eat and drink are owned by five companies. All of book publishing is owned by four companies. Um, you know, all of the, I mean, we have a lot of concentration of, of even essential things around these really huge companies, these really huge conglomerates. And that in a globalized environment definitely makes sense. But for India, it's not like these Indian companies are out there competing overseas. They're competing in the domestic market, which means you're going to end up with the worst type of monopoly. And that's the monopoly where people really have no other choice. And it's you pay or you just do without. And that can be a constraint to growth moving forward. India needs antitrust laws. Um, it's the moral of the story. India needs antitrust laws. But the, the Indian legal system is so convoluted anyway that they need 
legal reform as well and to simplify a lot of their laws and incorporate i mean doing business in india is a nightmare from a legal perspective because their laws are just so complicated and a lot of stuff has not been digitized yet a lot of the laws and business things are leftovers from british colonialism um there's a, a long way to go in the legal structure before india really becomes a global player um returning back stateside um we're gonna dash through trump's social media gag order um britney spears new tell-all book um the southern border and the segment on morning joe that i thought was interesting and then we're gonna wrap up on a couple of stories on ai so we're at the bottom of the hour it's 5 30 so um here we go uh trump ordered to not post evidence in hush money case on social media so uh obviously trump's case is winding its way through the manhattan da and um and they're and they're still dealing with the 34 felony counts of business record fraud dealing with the stormy Daniels payment that sent michael cohen to jail and it says here um from bloomberg a new york judge barred donald trump from posting evidence from his criminal case on social media restricting the former president's ability to make public statements about charges alleging he directed hush money payments to an adult film actress state supreme court justice juan Mershan on monday also restricted trump from publicly disclosing details about witnesses or other evidence that Manhattan prosecutors have collected against him. The order comes as Trump is trying to get the case transferred to federal court. Now, why would he want to transfer it to federal court, you might ask? Oh, that's because he appointed like 400 judges and they could get it moved to a Trump-friendly judge. That is, um, yeah, that's, that's where, that's where that's at. Um... So that, but I, I'm not surprised the gag order for that case has come down. Trump has talked a lot on Truth Social. He said a lot of things. Um, a lot of it could be construed as being in contempt of court and or obstruction of justice, which we know Trump likes to do. Um, so I'm not surprised that that is happening. And of course, of course, Trump wants it to federal court. Of course. In book publishing news, <laughs> this is funny. Publishing company, this is from dailycaller.com. Publishing company Simon & Schuster has reportedly put the release of Britney Spears' tell-all book on hold after allegedly receiving legal letters on behalf of A-list celebrities concerned about the content in Spears' book. The company is now entangled in the possibility of litigation by A-listers who are purportedly upset about what Spears will expose in her autobiography. The Sun first reported on Sunday. Attorneys representing the stars have allegedly sent legal letters to Simon & Schuster, though details about the issues reportedly cited in the letters are not public. Strongly worded legal letters have been sent to the publishers by people who know Britney and who fear what she has written, an unnamed source told The Sun. There is no movement at the moment, but there are concerns over when it will eventually be able to come out. The book was originally slated for release in February, but has now been pushed back to the end of 2023, according to the outlet. Topics rumored to be mentioned in Spears' book include details about her conservatorship, her family dynamics, and Spears' marriage to her current husband, Sam Asghari. Britney wants this to be her moment she talks to the world to tell her side of the story and set the record straight, the source reportedly said. There's a fair amount of throwing people under the bus, talking about past relationships, some of whom will be revealed for the first time ever. The source reportedly alluded to some of the consensitive content may include, but did not divulge any information pertaining to which celebrities allegedly felt so strongly about the book that they issued legal letters. Um, it says here the publishing deal is worth roughly $15 million, according to The Sun, um, journalist and novelist Sam Lansky is the ghostwriter for the project. 
I thought that was interesting um, and kind of funny um, that there were multiple people concerned about what she was going to say, which makes me want to read it all the more and find out how that they contributed to her life being really difficult. So I say bring it on, Simon & Schuster. You go right on ahead with that because that book will sell very, very well. Um, in less salacious news, um, we have uh, this really great, this also from the Daily Caller, um, on Monday they had Democratic... Um, California Representative Pete Aguilar, who's the head of the Democratic Caucus in the House, um, on Morning Joe to talk about the southern border crisis. And I'm, I'm not going to read the story beyond that, but there is... Um, I was Here's what I was impressed by. I was impressed by how the segment really pushed back on the talking points. In fact, the title of the article is We've been saying that, but we've been saying this, MSNBC host pushes back against them who repeat same border talking points. So they're talking about, oh, we're building processing centers. Oh, we're doing more for people. And I was really proud of Joe because he's like, look, there's a multi-year humanitarian border crisis going on down there. We have people crossing illegally. We have other issues going on. At what, when do we start to solve this problem for real? Where's the permanent solution that's going to bring this problem to a close and i think and i think this was good because i think it 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 i just wrote an article on the southern border and fentanyl those are both at cameronjewel.com under politics and i don't think enough people on the left have really been willing to address the fact we have a crisis at the southern border there's no other two ways to put it it, at, at a minimum, it is a humanitarian crisis. People are living under tarps in tents. There was a fire last month that killed 37 people. Um, you have people that have been stuck in Mexico under Title 42, the Remain in Mexico policy from the Trump administration. Um, the Biden administration has done damn little to change any Trump-era immigration policies, not in any actionable way. Um, and border crossings are through the roof. It's a, it's a big problem, and I think for the left, it's a huge blind spot. It's something that is the concern of a lot of Americans. And I was really glad on a liberal network to have someone, you know, holding Democrats to task by saying, are you ever going to finally address this? Or is it just going to be a whole lot of hot air and a whole lot of nothing? So I felt that was good, good progress for sure. Um, if you want to watch the whole segment, it's on MSNBC um, on, on, uh, on Morning Joe. So I want to wrap up today because I feel like it's only, we're only at 35 minutes, but I, I want to wrap up um, on these two stories about AI. So obviously AI is a huge top, hot topic right now. People are experimenting with chat GPT-4, all this type of thing. But over the weekend, I found this great, um, uh, this great article, um, from, uh, from, what is this, from futurism.com. And it says here, Associate Director of Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, Robert Reich, threw absolute daggers this week when, while speaking to Esquire about the newness of the AI industry and how that impacts its relationship to ethics, he likened those in the burgeoning field to actual children. 
Quote, AI researchers are more like late-stage teenagers, Reich told Esquire, comparing those in the still very much developing field of AI to those in more established, similarly ethics-concerned biomedical tech. They're newly aware of their power in the world, but their frontal cortex is massively underdeveloped. Their sense of social responsibility, he added, as a consequence, is not so great. Gotta say, if the industry AI bros are indeed acting like kids, Reich may have just cemented himself as the adult in the room. Honestly, when you think about it, it's a pretty solid analogy. For one thing, teens are often risk-happy thrill-seekers, and folks who work in AI, particularly the younger crowd, are constantly talking about how the unregulated technology that they're building might annihilate humanity, but as their risk aversion generally seems to hover right around zero, they keep building it regardless. There's also the fact that, as Esquire discussed in the article at hand, a lot of tech bros very much want to live forever, and many of them want to do so with the help of AI. And anyone who's either been a teenager or knows a teenager knows, teens generally think of themselves as invincible. It's also common for young people to find themselves questioning more existential questions of life, perhaps losing and finding religion or lack thereof along the way, and some can argue that the quest to build AI is a quest to do the same. After all, the folks in Silicon Valley are quite literally attempting to design a separate and possibly even superior being in our own image. Whether the goal is to build a version of God in a machine or become a God to a machine will depend on the individual, but we're certain that both outlooks are present in the fast-moving competitive field. And I loved this because describing AI scientists as frontal cortex is massively underdeveloped and no sense of social responsibility, I love because I have been complaining about this problem in tech for years uh, I had, I've had two guests on the podcast in the new, in the Cameron Journal version of the podcast. Um, Justin Pierce and Kent Kemish. And both of them are technologists and both of them are working on things that will very much change the way we live. Justin Pierce wrote a book on how to DIY regular products in your home and he is a forefront of the 3D printing movement. Kent Kemish is figuring out how to make us actually live forever biologically and defeat aging as a disease. And, um, uh, and both of these men, when I ask them what the long-term consequences of their products and, and technology are, I don't ever get satisfying answers. Ever. Never. I, I never do. Um, everything they say is always a bit disappointing. Um, it is always leaves a lot to be desired, um, which is unfortunate. Um, and I always bring up like, yeah, if you're going to, you know, cure aging and have people live to 120, that has big societal implications that we should talk about that. Um, and AI say faces the same problem. Um, it, we need to have conversations about how this technology is going to change our lives and our society. And for once, for once, I am begging us not to leave this up to just people in Silicon Valley. I am begging us to have the opportunity for actual democratic decision making. I am begging us to actually be able to come together as a society and decide how we're going to deal with this. And we're just not there yet. Unfortunately, we're just not there yet. And that is deeply troubling. However, in our final story, um, this is kind of where NFTs and AI kind of all blend together. 
Um, this one is from BigThink.com. Will generative AI destroy the nascent NFT market for artists? It says, over the past few months, the world has witnessed the dazzling capabilities of GPTs, generative pre-trained transformers, which seem to become more impressive by the day. One of their most revolutionary breakthroughs has been the ability to create images, artworks, and photographs based on text prompts to GPT programs, such as Dolly, Midjourney, and Stable Diffusion. Anyone can now become a visual artist by using nothing more than text. GPTs, including ChatGPT, are not without controversy. And it goes on about copyright lawsuits and technologists and databases and all this type of thing. Um, what is interesting here is that now we have this kind of thing of will this AI-generated artwork also become NFTs? So it says here, will GPTs now make NFTs obsolete? If everyone can become a visual artist by typing a few words, the supply of AI art will grow dramatically. On social media, where people constantly share their latest AI creations, including their prompts, it already has. Midjourney even uses a social network on Discord so creators can see in real time the prompts and images that they and others create. Midjourney has a new describe function that analyzes any image and gives you a prompt to recreate it. The images created on Midjourney are known for their distinctive Midjourney look. Why would anyone buy an NFT for AI art that one can create yourself? No doubt, GPTs will dramatically expand the pool of visual creators and increase the competition among artists to stand out, but it's not likely to curtail the use of NFTs by artists or dampen the market. It's also important to recognize that many creators using ChatGPT, for example, are pursuing paths other than becoming NFT artists, such as graphic designers, brand consultants, and social media influencers. So, the increased competition among NFT artists may not be as dramatic as what appears on first blush. This person ought is, and I, I read the whole thing, it goes on for a while, but this person thinks that generative AI is not going to change the NFT market, and I think they're a bit delusional. Um, I think the NFT market is, I mean, full disclosure, this is a market I work in. Um, I have some NFT projects working um, with a photographer friend of mine, um, who you'll be hearing from in a couple weeks. And, uh, and so I'm very sensitive to changes in the market. The reality is NFTs had a really big moment last year, and it has not been the same since then. It just hasn't. Um, and the NFT market could literally be irrelevant tomorrow. I mean, it, it literally could be that, that bad. And the article says, well, as institutions acquire these things, then, it, you know, it, you know, good art will survive all this type of thing. Um... Good art's already not surviving as NFTs. Um, the use case for NFTs is not great. It's really hard to, um, you know, it's really hard to get people to pay for a JPEG. You know, first something that, for a token to something that doesn't actually really have any intrinsic value on its own. It's a computer file that you just get to say that you own, have access to. And so um, you have to put in some other incentives. So to kind of make it more valuable. So is it, you know, community interaction with the artist? Is it, you know, exclusive content? All Like, what does buying that get you in terms of artist interaction? Um, or community interaction or special things or discounts or whatever have you. So um, 
that's you know that's kind of where that market is at. So the market's already struggling. I think AI art's going to undermine NFTs a lot. Now, do I think that there might be this weird mush of like AI generated art for NFTs and people following AI artists? Yeah, but I mean. For one, AI art isn't really art. In fact, I got in an argument on Twitter with somebody who's like, I'm an AI artist. I'm like, you are a typist. <laughs> Truman Capote very famously said of Jack Kerouac, that's not writing, that's typing. I'm like, you are a fancy typist. That's not art, that's typing. I'm like, go learn how to do something. Go learn how to make something and call me. Don't just type words into a thing that's dumb. And and people got very mad at me and all this type of thing. But I, I stand by... I think if you're making a real thing that has real interest, that will survive. I think there's a community case for NFTs. Whether AI art is going to, you know, survive and grow to really advanced levels, or that will eventually become NFTs, I think that will obviously live into that answer. But I think authenticity, regardless of the technology, authenticity is always king. People don't buy things, they buy stories, and people love authenticity. So if people can bring authenticity to AI art, which I don't think they can, but I'm sure somebody will go out busily and prove me wrong on that. Um, if they can bring authenticity to AI art, then I think they'll have something. And they might be able to create a following, and that would make an NFT make sense, and all this type of thing. But right now, it's pretty generic. And I think that's, that's sad. But I mean, given the digitization of our culture, I'm not surprised that uh, even the machines have to become artists too. So that's all for me. We covered a lot of ground. We got eight news stories today. You got a lot out of me today. So um, thank you all so much for watching. I really appreciate it. This is the Cameron Journal podcast. Um, don't forget to catch me online um, on Twitter at Cameron Cowan, facebook.com slash Cameron L. Cowan, Instagram Cameron Cowan. Um, so... Thank you guys for watching. I am tomorrow night doing an appearance on another live stream called In the Name of God. Um, there's a community post on, if you're watching this on YouTube, there's a community post about this. Um, if you got my newsletter, I announced it this morning. Um, I'm going to be on their live stream tomorrow at 6 p.m. Pacific. Um, and we're going to be talking about um, how I escaped evangelicalism and all this type of thing. And we're going to be talking about, you know, faith and God and what it's like to grow up kind of super religious and then to kind of leave that behind and go in a different direction and all this type of thing. So um, it, it promises to be a really good conversation. Um, if all goes well, it will be the first of three appearances <laughs> with them. So it's kind of kind of be a whole a whole series. So um, and it's in partnership with a new company I'm working with called PlankSip, which is just headquartered up the road in Vancouver, British Columbia. So um, it'll be most exciting. And so make sure to stop by on that. And uh, thank you so much for watching. And I will see you next Monday for the Cameron Journal News Hour. Have a great night, guys. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online 
at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>